the restaurant business and the food industry can just be an absolutely wild ride. And my guest today is a former chef turned world traveler. And we talk about some of the details of the restaurant business, what it was like uh, going through the training, what it was like in the restaurants. And I get to pick his brain a little bit of some of those interesting topics. We also talk about Northern Thai cuisine. We talk about hiking Patagonia, scuba diving in the Philippines, Iberian pork in Spain, and much, much more. Let's get started. Welcome, welcome to the Nomadic Foodist Show, a podcast for food-obsessed travelers. My name is Chris, your host, and I help people discover amazing food all around the world. Today's guest is Gabriel, and uh, he has been a chef for a long time, but decided he wanted to go travel the world with his wife. And so they've been traveling around the world, have some great stories, and now they have a blog that logs a lot of their adventures, but now focuses on most in California. Unfortunately, we just kind of ran out of time. (laughs) There's like so many things I wanted to talk about, about California and understanding that part of the United States, but we just kind of dive into the restaurant business, what it was like working and grinding out, uh, putting out some amazing food, understanding some restaurant culture, and then we kind of just bounce around a bunch of different fun things that he's done and kind of what it's like to maybe like plan your trip to Patagonia, what it's like to uh, go scuba dive in like the Philippines and through Southeast Asia, and some of his favorite meals and things he was able to experience um, in his travels, understanding the ingredients, such as ham on Iberico. You've probably heard that in the podcast before, so uh, we kind of dive into those specific details, and it's just a super fun conversation. So here is my conversation with Gabriel from cheftravelguide.com. Gabriel, thank you so much for joining us today, and we're really excited to hear all of your fun adventures around the world. Uh, but let's start off with the introduction. Tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, your website. Um, yeah, my name's Gabriel. I'm a chef originally from California, cooked for like 25 years, and um, a few years ago, me and my partner, uh, Christelle, kind of stepped away to start up our blog, Chef Travel Guide. Um, initially, it was like uh, completely devoted to international food travel, best food cities in the world. But we actually kind of pivoted and realized that we have this uh, amazing breadth of knowledge about California in our own backyard. And so um, kind of got a little bit of both in the mix, but it's really... Um, driven towards uh, California, making it easier, more accessible for people. But it's also allowed us to be out on the road and travel kind of full-time and experience the world and eat really good food as we go. Yeah, yeah. And where are you right now? Uh, We're currently in Chiang Mai, Thailand. Um, We really kind of came up here for the sole purpose of just digging in to learn a little bit more about Northern Thai cuisine, kind of go a little bit farther down the rabbit hole and try out some of those dishes that are outside of cow soy that kind of uh, <laughs> really embody the cuisine in this region. So, Yeah, yeah. Uh, like Northern Thai cuisine get very, very interesting. Um, I'm trying to remember the chef who just kind of like brought a lot of Northern Thai cuisine to the United States. Um, he He's the chef owner of like uh, the restaurant in New York called uh, Pok Pok. Trying to remember oh, yeah. Uh, Andy Ricker. Yeah, Andy Ricker. So, like, yeah, he's, I eat in his Portland restaurants. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, like, that's, that's kind of interesting. I watched some of his stuff and the things that he's kind of explored and it gets, it gets really interesting. What have you found out so far? Well, well first, like what is Northern Thai cuisine? How's it different from what we know if we go to like a Thai restaurant in the United States? 
Well, uh, Northern Thai cuisine is almost completely isolated. Um, I think one of the things that's kind of a, we get this misconception in America um, specifically um, about what Thai cuisine is. It's kind of, we've kind of got this like cookie cutter version that kind of pops up in most Thai restaurants throughout the country, minus some special places like Pok Pok or a few others that are really tying into the real cuisine of Thailand. Um, for the most part, a lot of those places that is somewhat real Thai food, um, but it's kind of um, devoid of all the regionality that exists within the country. Um, you kind of look at like Northern Thai cuisine or the Eastern province or some of the like Southern um, cuisine you'd find down in like Hot Yai. And each region is very unique. It has a different set of ingredients that they work with that make those cuisine special. Plus there's the the migratory patterns of people through the years that have happened from like some of the hill tribes that moved in from different areas, uh, the spice roads that have moved in from India through like Myanmar or current day Myanmar into the area. And so you see these influences from outside the area that come into these little regional cuisines. And there's um, Northern Thai cuisine is kind of unique in the fact that when you think of Northern Thailand or you're in this area, you don't see a lot of coconut trees. And so you have this dish, Khao Soy, which is probably more, traditionally from the areas around like um, Myanmar um, than it is actually Thai, but that's kind of what people think of when they think of Northern Thai cuisine. But really Northern Thai cuisine is kind of without coconut milk. So that stuff you would see in American restaurants of like the stoplight curries, red, yellow, and green kind of really isn't a thing up here. Um, they have their own styles of curries. Um, like uh, one of our favorites is Gang Hung Lei, which is this deeply rich, slow cooked pork belly um, curry. Um, served. I like to eat it with sticky rice. Um, and then you'll see a lot of these other different dishes that are like kind of based on other ferments because also to being a landlocked area of the country, it's kind of isolated away from seafood. So um, fish sauce is not a, it's kind of like a newer thing here in the North <laughs> yeah. for the most part, even though it's been around for hundreds of years. And so they rely on more like fermented soybeans or like there's a Dompric Noom and um, which is like these fermented chilies you eat with like steamed vegetables. And that's where they kind of get to those deep umami, funky kind of flavors. It like really builds some depth into the cuisine. Wow. Okay. I've been to Chiang Mai before and it was a while, a little bit ago. And goodness, the food was amazing. I really enjoyed all, all the different things. And it's definitely a lot different from Bangkok. It has its own way of like functioning, its own vibe, definitely slower paced and... I don't know. I love like the different markets and areas. And sometimes I don't even know what I'm eating. I have no idea. I remember my wife and I were at the like North Gate market somewhere and there's just this line. So we just stood in the line. We had no idea what it was. And we're just like standing in line. And then I'm like, okay, I got to see what, what we're getting. Cause after like 10 minutes, like I'm committed now. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm sure this is going <laughs> to be a great meal. And then it was just like some cabbage and noodles from okay, yeah. this like little stand, no idea what it was. And it was one of the most amazing things we've eaten on like that whole trip. Unbelievable. No idea what it is. Just something that they I know. Have. I know that vendor. You do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that, it's a sukiyaki place. It's kind of like this kind of uh, thing you find up here. There's a couple different spots where you can find it. In fact, there's one by south of the old city that does great sukiyaki. And then they do a, it's like a hoi tada crispy oyster omelet that they serve with it. It's a great combination. Oh, man. So, you yeah. know, exactly. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. We had no idea what it was the entire yeah. time. There's a, we're so unfamiliar. There's with a couple them. great vendors at that market. So. Oh, my goodness. 
Yeah. And one of my favorite things too was like the, you know, stew like pig's foot or like pig's leg, you know, with rice and they serve with like a boiled mm. egg and stuff. And oh goodness, I can't remember half the things that I ate there. And I'm thinking about it. I have to look. That's back. a good one. That's when the, there's the cowboy uh, hat lady who's yeah. up to the Northern market also. Yeah. And that's that uh, cow cow moo dish that I love so dearly. It's that five spice and you mm-hmm. did that little vinegar sauce on there. That's and right. It cuts through the richness. Yeah. That's a great dish. Yeah, and she's actually pretty famous. I know she's been on some TV shows and stuff. Yeah, the lines have gotten a little smaller over the years, which is uh, bad for her and probably the supporting family and everything else, but it yeah. makes it a little easier to get food there. You don't have to wait an hour anymore. Yeah, that's <laughs> so, good. That's yeah. good. <laughs> oh, yeah, and so people who are unfamiliar with what we're talking about, it's basically, goodness, this big cauldron of like bubbling pork, um, specifically like the pig's foot on the, the leg, and then it's chopped up and served with rice and it comes with all these different like condiments and stuff you can put on there. It's very fatty. Like I love the taste of like pork fat, even just mm, yeah. goodness, like pork skin. People don't quite realize in the United States that when they eat pork, in my opinion, it doesn't really taste like pork. A lot of times, um, just going around the world, you eat pork. I'm like, wow, this tastes like intensely porky compared to what I'm used to. And I like that. I don't know. Yeah. To me, it's amazing. <laughs> Yeah, I actually like pork to taste like pork. I think that's one of the things in America they've really gone out of their way to breed out the porkiness out of and the fat out of the pigs. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, because of it, it's just kind of like a neutral flavor now. But when you go out here, like you're here, or like especially in like Spain and some of these other places, you can just find pork that's spectacular. Oh my goodness! Well, hey, yeah, so good. Or the animals are treated well; they eat well, so they taste better. <laughs> that is right. That is right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's it's funny how much you learn about food just by traveling um, and just kind of searching around the world. And goodness, I'm really interested in hearing kind of like your your backstory. Let's start off with just like kind of like how you grew up. How did your upbringing influence your outlook on food and travel and why you decided to become a chef? Well, it really kind of, I, I grew up in Southern California and um, like it was a hodgepodge of different cuisines surrounding me every single day. Um, um, it starts like with Mexican food is, I would say, probably the predominant cuisine in the area that I grew up. And um, so I looked at all these cuisines as if it was my cuisine growing up. These were the foods that yeah. my mom would make or friends, parents would make. Um, it extended to when I was taking karate classes for discipline when I was a kid and um, I was eating, you know, Korean food um, with the family. And, and this was just the food that I grew up around. And so kind of it was... I didn't realize it, but I was eating this melting pot of cuisines at a young age. And um, this really kind of affected me more as a chef. And um, as I started to step into cooking when I was about 18 years old, um, that carried on for about 25 more years. I was never like comfortable with just cooking one cuisine, being like, I'm an Italian chef or I'm a French chef. Yeah. I always had this insatiable urge to know about all different types of cuisines. It was like unthinkable to not want to understand the virtues regional, like say um, Thai cuisine, or to understand more about Mexican cuisine, which those are kind of my favorite two cuisines in the world. So I've kind of gone farther down the rabbit hole with those two. But um, then that extended to my travels. I started to seek out these destinations around the world where I was really intrigued by the food. And so it kind of sent me on this roller coaster ride where everywhere I go, I got to dig in and I got to find <laughs> more. I got to see what the, the people are eating, not what they want you to eat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. or, that's great. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, that's how it all started off. And I, I think that's kind of what um, 
made me so passionate about food was just that early upbringing of being, um, having that experience with all those different cuisines. And I also grew up with some amazing home cooks. Like my mom is a really talented cook. Um, both my grandmas could cook. Um, and I started cooking at a very young age. I think I started with like biscuits and gravy and Ooh, eggplant, okay. or, yeah, eggplant parmesan. It was just some simple <laughs> stuff that was like at the time, but it was eight years old and it was kind of a, it was just like, I can do these ones. And that started me down the path of wanting to know yeah. more about food and I don't know. Eggplant parm seems like a pretty intense dish for most people in general to to get right because I've had plenty of bad eggplant parms at restaurants. So uh, (laughs) for you being eight years old trying to tackle that, you know, I think that's pretty. I think that's complex. I, in in my opinion, I think that's pretty good. (laughs) I have a great memory when it comes to food. Um, You ask me someone's birthday, I can never tell you. You Like I can tell you what my mom's perfume smelled like and what my dad was wearing at a meal when I was like six years old and like down to the smallest details of like how we were engaging with a waiter at a restaurant or things like that. Interesting. Pretty much anything else just disappears out of my brain, but food memories stick really aggressively. Yeah. It's me. Me too. It's crazy. My wife and I, well, well, like my wife and I were joking about this the other day where, um, so it was actually kind of scary. So, um, I, uh, like, when was it? It was last year. We had gone traveling, um, through like Europe and stuff for about six months. We get back to the United States and I get COVID. And then my taste and smell disappears for like maybe three days. It was a very scary time. I'm like, oh my gosh, I have to eat food. Oh my goodness. I can't believe I can't taste anything. Really bizarre. <laughs> like, I could eat a raw onion, no problem. <laughs> but, Uh, Luckily, the taste and smell came back. And now, especially, my taste and smell is even like more like intense than before. Not like, like, like super far off, like things just taste really weird, but I can smell things and like really identify them pretty quickly. And it's interesting now I can smell something. I'm like, oh, that smells like this one thing we ate like five years ago at this one restaurant. <laughs> and all of a sudden things just kind of come back. And uh, I've always uh. had a good food memory too. I could just remember how things tasted. And more importantly, like how did it make me feel at the time from really important meals going all the way back, you know, yeah. to childhood. <laughs> yeah. um, there's probably like a direct connection to like you actually during that time having COVID and then you're basically like exercising a muscle with that, connecting yeah. those memories to aromas and flavors. And you probably actually, you know, made that muscle of your olfactory glands um, stronger. I mean, I tell people all the time, they ask those questions, like, um, how do I develop a better palate? And it's like, think constantly about what you're eating and drinking. That's the only way you're going to get there because you're creating and forging those memories that your brain can now relate to when it smells something and so that goes to like wine tasting different things like that like how do you pick up all those nuances of the wine well i've spent a lot of time digging into a bottle of wine and really thinking <laughs> deeply about yeah. what those aromas are and what creating those memories that stick so yeah covid might have been a <laughs> huge yeah. win in that aspect for you so yeah oh man yeah it was definitely bizarre um so i'm curious though for, you, know, you grew up with all this great food a lot of diversity what was like one of your favorite meals from a kid that you really miss? Oh, wow. Um, I think the one that I, I go back to all the time is such a simple one, but like it just resonated with me. I, um, our family has a heritage in the avocado industry, like small like orchards um, in Southern California. And I think my aunt and uncle are still um, raising or growing um, avocados at this point, still down in like Temecula area. 
And um, so one of the meals that really resonated with me is my mom and her friends would get together, get all the families together, and they would make taquitos. It seems so simple, but um, they would take that beef and slow braise, like, you know, chuck roast or something like that, and um, get it nice and tender, roll it up in some good corn tortillas, crisp, get them nice and crispy and serve it, which is a giant bowl of really delicious avocado from right from the trees, uh, guacamole right from the trees. And, um, it just... I don't know, that kind of combination of those textures, that crunch, that fattiness of that, uh, the beef in combination with that fattiness of that guacamole and those kind of bright flavors you get from those punches of that, that piquant onion and the sweetness of the tomatoes. And, and of course, I love cilantro even as a child. So the more cilantro, the guac, the better. So <laughs> yeah. that was, yeah, that's one of my favorite meals. Wow. My mouth yeah. is like drooling right now. Just, just hearing you talk about it. Sounds amazing. Okay. Or like, when did you make that really big paradigm to pursuing the restaurant industry and becoming a chef? Um, I it was, I started off when I was 18 years old. I kind of got this job working in this, uh, working retail at this cooking school slash retail store. Um, I think it's defunct now. might've transitioned to like a new, like online subscription service thing, but um, they taught home cooks how to make really good food. And it was all run by professional chefs. Well, I was hired as an assistant manager um, overseeing the retail, so I had to learn about all this cooking equipment. One day, uh, one of the assistant teachers got sick, and I actually had to step in and help assist with one of the cooking classes and really liked it. They, I guess, was pretty helpful, so they invited me back to do it. I did this for several months, um, and then I showed up one day to show my grandparents this really cool place I was working at because my grandma's a great cook. I wanted to show her all the cool stuff we were selling, neat knives and everything. And um, there's a sign in the door saying they're closed. My manager comes out. She's crying. She passes me um, a final check and um, gave my grandparents a hug, went back to my place, which was actually only about around the corner, uh, changed my clothes and walked over to this kind of influential restaurant in Sacramento where I was living at the time and um, got a job working at the pantry station making salads and desserts. I was hired and working there the next day. Um, and that's where it all started. Um, about six months later, when my friend's mom said, why don't you go to culinary school? I was like, having to rationalize that was an idea. And next thing I knew, about a year later, I was in San Francisco. And 25 years later, I picked my head up and went, holy crap, what just happened? Oh, <laughs> I had oh, worked no. as a chef for many years, running yeah. some really cool restaurants. <laughs> it was kind of a whirlwind. But um, yeah, I really kind of dug my, I buried my head in the sand and kind of was just doing everything I possibly could, working 80-hour weeks, um, developing my craft and trying to become great at what I do. And that's actually where I met my business partner and wife, uh, Christelle. She was actually worked in the kitchen with me as a pastry chef. And so we um, forged those connections over food at that point. And now she was the one who actually introduced me to travel um, because, frankly, in 25 years, I really hadn't taken more than probably three days off in a row because um, vacations were... One of those things that like you're offered a vacation, but if you leave for a week and the thing falls apart, you're probably not going to be employed when you get back. So you just got to oh, put yeah. your head down and go. And um, so at some point um, I was in a situation where we were about to start a new job and I got an opportunity to follow Christelle over to Manila because she actually grew up in uh, Manila in the Philippines. Um, and so she was going to visit some friends and family and, um, I followed a week later and, um, that's when the whole travel bug got into me. It just like, once it started, I couldn't turn it off. So, yeah. Well, was there like an, like aha travel moment that kind of came up? That's like, okay, I have to 
really do this for as long as I possibly can? Or was it just like an accumulation of events that kind of built up? I, th- I think it was kind of instantaneous. I mean, on that same trip, um, there was a moment where um, I was getting off the first flight and landed in Incheon Airport. And um, I look up at the sign as I'm getting off the plane and I see welcome to South Korea. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. Um, mm-hmm. Like just seeing that sign, it seems so silly. Like you're just transitioning, but like, it seemed like all of a sudden, like I was doing something bigger. There was something special happening in this moment. It maybe kind of eclipsed everything I had done as far as cooking, um, that I was out experiencing the world instead of staying in my little, like, you know, it's like my little bubble, um, being trapped inside this little sphere that I kind of created for myself. And I, in that moment, like, I was like, man, there's something bigger out here. I need to get out. And I, I think Anthony Bourdain described it best and um, I'm going to misquote him. So I'm going to butcher it a little bit, but he mentions that like coming into Asia or he was talking, I think specifically about Vietnam, that there's like a million different colors in the spectrum when you're here. And when you, once you experience that, you look back and everything's kind of just in a gray scale back at home. And um, I, that's kind of what happened to me in that moment. I was like, oh, wow, there's so much more. And just walking through that airport and then arriving in Manila and getting picked up by my future brother-in-law and um, us driving straight to the market and eating Betamax, which is this like uh, charcoal grill um, pork blood cakes um, that they have on skewers and uh, eating that. And just like this revelation of like this, that I'm doing something special, that I'm experiencing something I'm digging into the cuisine of a local of what the like the local people in that area are eating and um it, it changed me instantaneously so and it was almost impossible to go back from that it's crazy how a single moment can really capture you like that i know that's what happened to me too like it really was that impactful and you're just like oh my goodness like i can't like my brain is forever changed. I can never go back to the way I was before or the way I thought about the world before. And it's crazy because Anthony Bourdain was such a big influence on my life. So um, there was, I, I probably said this before in plenty of podcasts, but it was such an instrumental moment for me. Like um, I was deciding where to go for my first like trip internationally as an adult. And so I was looking through these destinations. I didn't want to go to Paris or Rome because those ones are very much well-traveled. And I kind of wanted mm-hmm. to do something that was still a little bit different, but still um, familiar. It wasn't going to be like off the beaten path too much. And so I watched Anthony Bourdain and it was in No Reservations. It's the beginning shot to the episode of Spain and the caravans in this van with Anthony Bourdain. And he says, no one in the history of the world has eaten as well as we have this week. And I'm just like, I guess I got to go to Spain. I guess I got to. <laughs> so, so I went to Barcelona and holy guacamole. It just, it's a whole new thing over there with how great the food is. And I remember going to the, the main market, La Bucaria, and went to this little food stall. At the time it was little, but now it's very popular. Um, it's called El Kim. And I ordered this like sauteed wild mushrooms with a piece of foie gras on top with like an egg on top and it was just it looked disgusting and it just tasted beyond anything a huge like umami bomb like right there amazing yeah. phenomenal <laughs> sounds great actually combination <laughs> of flavors sound good. that's one thing that spanish do so well is like they can it's the combination of flavors and just this mm-hmm. i think it extends from their like as a culture there's this extreme passion 
for eating and sharing oh. foods with each other and coming together as groups to dine. And um, I think actually you see that also in the Philippines because of the occupation of Spanish there for so long. Oh, the yeah. Filipinos mm-hmm. love food. They have such a bad reputation for their food, but I think it's such a misgiving because I think most of the food that people experience from their cuisine is uh, only a little cross section because the best food is what's cooked in the home. And they tend to not oh, eat of course. food of course. at restaurants because like yeah. we can just have that at home. So yeah, yeah, there's but there's that passion in, in Spain. But a lot of the food isn't the prettiest food in the world, but it's so That's delicious. Right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm I'm right there with you. It's like we're now in and we're in Bogota. And have you been to Bogota before? I haven't. I actually we didn't make it into Colombia. We did a big swing of South America many years ago, um, and. As we're coming back through Bolivia, Cristel was having some problems with the elevation because we were up mm. at 15,000 feet. And oh, yeah. we had to get down to Santa Cruz, Bolivia right away to um, try to get some of those symptoms. She was pretty serious symptoms in check. And so we missed Peru and Colombia in the process. <laughs> well, if since you love food, I'm telling you, this is this is unbelievable. It's one of the best food cities I've ever been to in my entire life. I will go on record. I've had some of the best italian food i've ever had i've had the best pizza of my life here and i've been to italy i've been to rome okay. i have eaten amazing food all over the world at like 30 different countries i'm telling you i have it's blowing me away not one single bad meal and it's so outrageously inexpensive just we just went goodness to a, like a italian restaurant yesterday and we got this i don't know what it was called so it was like grilled oyster mushrooms over like a wood fire grill with like cured meat, uh, some sort of like steak. I forgot what it is, and, like thin slices with a like confit, like egg yolk, and you kind of mix it up. And it was just, like the most amazing like starter I think I've had in like the past three years. <laughs> it was like so amazing. Oh, this is really, it's really <laughs> interesting. <laughs> and then like I had like this like like this chicken with like a t- and like a tarragon sauce and they had like just freshly handmade pasta and my wife got this grilled steak with like black garlic butter we had this some other sort of like um like ravioli like stuffed pasta that was amazing great tiramisu we got i got like two cocktails uh, a beer um we got water soda all that stuff and everything all together with the tip was like 60 dollars us you know if you're in <laughs> any crazy. other like like I live in Denver, so if, if this was in Denver, easily a hundred and fifty dollar meal, no no doubt. Yeah, it sounds like the minimum. <laughs> and the and the yeah. portions were hefty. Like the chicken, it was a whole. It was like half chicken. The steak was at least twelve <laughs> ounces cooked, so it was probably a sixteen ounce steak before you know it was all said and done, like when it started. But twelve ounces cooked. I'm just like, this is like bonkers. How good it is. And then the Colombian food's amazing too, and. You can just eat yourself silly. I mean, to the point of like bursting and you, you'll spend maybe $10 a person at, like a, at a Colombian restaurant and they're all great, nice, super delicious. <laughs> I think we're going to have to add that onto our itinerary. We're hoping to go back to South America start of 2024. And so oh, yeah. I think we're, yeah, we're not set on what we're doing down there. We just know we have some ideas of what we want to do. We're back. Yeah. So we have some. Unfinished business, I guess, down there. Oh, no, understandable, yeah. And then, yeah, Bogota, and it's only developing more and more, and just more great restaurants are, pop, are like, popping up. And, like, we went to another one. Goodness, I got to stop talking about this, but we went to, like, a, like, <laughs> modern kind of, like, barbecue place. Not quite American barbecue. And 
it's just a little bit different. I don't know. It's kind of hard to explain, but they play things a little bit more nicey, nicer, but it's not fancy. It's not like a, I don't know, like, like a nice restaurant per se, but we yeah. just got these, we got this like smoked, like one single rib that was smoked and it was just phenomenal. And then there was this like pork belly dish. They smoke the pork belly and then they, they fry it till it's crisp. And then they put it with like some other sauces and stuff nicely plated. This is just blew my mind. Like I've never seen this before anywhere else in the world. And it's right here in Bogota. It's amazing. Huh. It's actually funny. I used to run like a really modern kind of contemporary barbecue restaurant. <laughs> we literally had a restaurant like that where we were doing like really sophisticated presentations from all the sides. Uh, yeah. Really elaborate garnish work. And like we were trying to do like basically fine dining plating but mm. on a slightly larger scale, yeah. but with like classic smoked meats and like accompaniments. Um, so we were kind of like doing this quasi California, like vegetable centric barbecue restaurant with like, you get these boards of smoked meats. So it was just like, it was gluttony at its finest, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. but it was very modern and contemporary version. And yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, sorry to mean to like branch off there and, and steal your thunder. But I'm like, I'm going to have a Bogota. It's like so great. It's just. Um, no, it's like, like I had no idea there's a big bludgeoning like um, culinary scene exploding there. And um, I definitely want to check that out. Um, no, please should always share. Food. <laughs> it's, it's something we have to do as a part of our existence on this planet. And yeah. like, you might as well enjoy eating and sharing. And I think uh, sharing passion about food gets people to kind of shift their, you know, relationship with food. And if you look in a different light and I think that's very positive. So, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, no. And it's interesting. Cause I just wish like the restaurant I went to like yesterday, that Italian restaurant, and we've been to like four Italian restaurants here. I have to stop going to so many, but they're doing it so great. But if I had that one Italian restaurant in Denver, I would take all my friends, all my family there, whoever visited. If anyone said, Hey, what's the one restaurant I got to go to? It's that one. <laughs> okay. So, um, I forgot the name of the restaurant now. Um, it's called uh, Vecina or Vecina. I don't know. I'm trying to remember now. Off the top of my head. I'll put in the show notes of this page for the for people. But yeah, it's crazy. Just food itself is so powerful. And just, this, just having those transformative moments. That's why I get so excited to kind of share these things with people. And I've been writing my blog post a certain way. And I've been writing it from the perspective of when I'm 80 years old, I'm going to read back and I'm going to remember these amazing meals. Because <laughs> if, if I forget somehow, I'm going to remember what I ate, how it made me feel and how it tasted. And so I'll have, like, goodness, I've been writing like each of these like food guides are anywhere between four to, you know, 6,000 words of, you know, best places to eat in like a city. And it's just because I want someone to be like, oh, I want to go there and I want to get that. And I want to feel that way. So hopefully yeah. uh, people can understand that that's where I'm coming from. It, it really can change everything. Just eating the one thing, going to one place, your entire world can just flip upside down. Yeah, absolutely. I know it's just been revelation after revelation as we've been moving through the world, eating you know, these different establishments are finding these little special street vendors, and forging these connections with them. It's such a special, impactful thing. Yeah. Well, when you were um, going through like culinary school and working in the restaurants, um, what were some of the highlights of that experience? And what were some of the tough challenges that you had to come to reality with and maybe overcome? The restaurant industry as a whole can be 
kind of brutal. Um, it's, um, I think when most people are exposed to it, you hear a lot of stuff about people hearing about like recently in the news, like Noma restaurant in Copenhagen and oh, yeah. people have been kind of attacking him because of like, um, being yelled at. But I mean, that's, um, that's kind of the nature of the industry. And, um, I worked for a chef that I won't name. Um, I got to go in and do a stage unpaid at one point. And, um, um, I came in and they were missing a couple people off one of their stations or chef de partie from the associate station. And they were in a little bit of trouble and they kind of pushed me into a position where I had to take on the station and cook. Um, as a young stagiaire, I had no business being in that position. And, um, I'm kind of get to see the dishes once they really show me the other cooks are kind of scrambling because they're short staffed. Um, and in the process, I, um, take over the station for the night and, um, a world-class restaurant. And, um, I push up my first risotto after I receive the order and the chef takes it, comes back to me and starts screaming and he throws the hot risotto from the pan onto my arm and it instantly burns me. Uh, I got kind of blisters welling up fairly instantaneously and he's over the top yelling. Um, um, I go back, start cooking again. I start making another one to replace that one and I push it up. It gets up to the pass. He takes it, comes back, and does the exact same thing. Throws it on the same oh bar and screams at me. And what? It's over the top, like, yeah, you, SOB, all that stuff. Um, and I go back, don't even say a word, just make another one as fast as I can. I'm picking up other orders and um, finishing off different sauces and um, take it up to the pass again. And he says nothing. The risotto comes out. Um, I make it through the rest of the service without incident. Everything kind of was going good. Um, I had like a sous chef here and there, go check your salt, just different things like that. Um, but at the end he comes over to me and he hands me a beer, puts his arm around me, just kind of sinks me down to the ground. And we're sitting leaning up against like the refrigerators on the station. And he goes on to explain to me, he's like, do you know why I had to do that? He's like, we had a food critic in the building tonight. He's like, that risotto was going to go out to, um, that food critic. He's like, I need you to understand that everything I've worked for for 35 years could be in the garbage in one moment with one single dish. He's like, I get a bad review because you put out a bad risotto. That's a reflection on me and the restaurant and the livelihood of everybody working here. And that really resonated with me because I understood, like I had worked really hard to that point in my career to even get to that point where I could even be a, like a holy stagiaire in this um, kitchen room. I understood that this guy's been doing this. He's been putting in these 80, sometimes 100 hour weeks for 35 years. And in just one moment, like one bad dish, food critic comes in, gives him a, you know, a two star instead of a four star review. And all of a sudden the place is empty and he's out of business. And all those employees and all the porters and dishwashers and cooks in front of the house staff and bartenders and managers, everybody are unemployed or scrambling to find new work. And, um, or, even worse, the slow death of the restaurant where they're like not making enough to get by for a long period of time. And, um, I understood that and it resonated with me. And he looked at me and said, do you want to come back tomorrow? And I said, absolutely. <laughs> it was a great decision. And so I think there are some like real highs and lows in this industry and the industry. Um, not all kitchens work that way, but that is a reality and the pressures that are on these chefs to perform and, you know, everybody's got an opinion about the food um, for better or worse. And um, I think the 
those pressures that are bestowed on chefs is almost like unreasonable at times. So like, I do not miss that part of it, but I think the part that was really impactful and important to me was um, being a chef and running my own brigade and being able to do it my way, maybe from a less, um, less screaming, less yelling, but developing talent. And I think my biggest wins as a chef aren't like the four-star reviews or any of that stuff. It was always about one of my young cooks developing into a chef. And my ultimate dream is, or has been and still is today, because a lot of them are still coming up through the ranks, is that they're going to surpass me and what I was able to do. And anytime that happens, that puts a big smile on my face, makes me completely giddy <laughs> like, to see yeah. them accomplishing greatness. And like one of the last cooks who worked for me that I had um, is um, her name is Alyssa, and she um, worked with me at the last like restaurant where we had a farm and everything on the property. And she's got at uh, Telier Crane in San Francisco, and she's doing some really cool. Things. Oh yeah, so I really think she might be the 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 promised one that just completely blows me out, blow me out of water. There was another one I who worked for me years ago who went on to get um, a Rising Chef, um, uh, James Beard Award, and all kinds of stuff. Um, working at restaurants in San Francisco. And, so yeah, those, those are my biggest wins and the things awesome. that I relish in the most. So Interesting. Okay. So looking back on that like tough moment where he like poured the risotto on your arm and burned you, like, would you change that moment or would you keep it as it is? If you had a chance. To? Oh, I know. I, I would keep it. I mean, the way yeah. I, I tell that story to you, it, like you can see the kind of impact it had on me. Yeah. Like, it resonated me on me that like, that idea, you hear it, it's kind of almost like said too much because it loses mm. its meaning. But like as a chef, you're only as good as your last plate. And oh, that's um, intense. yeah, like that really resonated with it. Every plate counts. There is no letting down in, in that industry to make it. I mean, to give me an idea. There was a time in the United States not too long ago where they were producing in the heyday of culinary schools. They're producing 86,000 culinary students in the United States every month. And you think about how many executive chef positions there are in the United States. At one point I heard there was a number of like something like 240,000 executive chefs slash kitchen manager positions in like non-corporate um, restaurants in the United States. And then the chances of being one of those cooks that graduates from culinary school and getting one of those positions is incredibly low. So the kind of commitment it takes to get to one of those positions is either is it's un it's unbelievable what you have to put in or just a little bit of timing luck and some other factors and privilege and other things that exist to get there. But um, very few make it through. And if you're not fully committed, you need to get out of the way and give someone else a chance. So. Yeah. Well, I don't want to get, if you're comfortable, I kind of want to dive into maybe understanding a little bit more of that like restaurant culture because when you brought up how like Noma was kind of in um, – it was written in bad light here recently. I think it was the Atlantic that wrote this really huge column about, you know, Rene Rezepi and how he ran his kitchen and how half his staff for a good portion of the time was, was un, like half it was unpaid. Um, and then it was kind of like smashing this whole thing. And then a lot of um, advocates, I'm kind of, I'm, I have my opinions. I'm interested to hear about yours since you've been in the restaurant business because you're, if you read that article, you're, you're seeing one very strong perspective and I don't understand maybe the other side too. So I'm interested to kind of hear yeah. like, I'm not sure if you read it or if you understand what it was about, but um, it was, 
it was definitely wasn't good. So I'm interested here. And for people who don't know, Noma was, oh goodness, like the best restaurant in the world for a while. And then it was, you know, again, the best restaurant in the world. And now they're closing their doors um, in 2024 to change the restaurant to like a research food kind of lab situation. So um, I have my thoughts. I'll share them too after because um, I grew up a little bit differently than most people. So um, yeah, I'm just interested in what your thoughts are. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, one of the challenges is people get really upset about like the whole idea of like unpaid stage. Um, what most people don't recognize is that those people desperately want to be there. They get an opportunity to go into the kitchens of like Noma um, or like in my time, I did stages at like Chez Panisse in Berkeley and a bunch of other places. And um, I actually had almost like 3000 hours worth of free time working in restaurants. Oh. And um, it's that's literally years worth of cumulative time. And what I got out of those experiences was an opportunity to see the inner workings of restaurants, to be able to actually see how chefs operate, how they think, the ingredients they're sourcing. Um, think about it this way, like say at Chef Denise, they bring in um, like um, all of a sudden cases worth of cardoons come in. And I've never touched a cardoon. I've never seen one, but now I'm immersed in them. I'm not just like washing them. I'm also then trimming the spines off, which I didn't even know I needed to do that at the time. I learned how to do that. And then I'm learning every little nuance of taking that product through even just these remedial stages of just prepping it for the cooks to do their work. I'm getting access to something that most people don't. And um, in that process, sometimes you get to be involved with making family meal and you get to like make dishes for the team and you can get feedback from the chefs and the crew. Because frankly, when you're a young cook, you have no business handling the food that's going to go into the guest mouth in most of these style, um, these powerhouse restaurants. The level of technique that goes into what they're doing takes so many years to craft. The motor skills, the understanding of like, when you smell this little nuance of something cooking, that it's, it's signaling something to you. That something is special and it's happening in this moment that you need to adapt to in your cooking process. And so... I think some stagiaries come in and kind of ruin it for a lot of the rest because they come in with these ambitions that they're going to be plating on the pass alongside the chef for the guests. And that's not realistic. Um, there's so many years, not like months, years removed from having the skills to be able to do that. And so I think the stage is important, but I think if people go into it with the wrong mindset that they're going to come yeah. out of it, the next great chef, it's the same thing as like culinary school. And actually in that light too, I think this is kind of crazy that people want to be paid to do these stages, but yet they're willing to pay upwards of 50,000 plus to go to culinary school. So you'll pay for an education there, but not getting paid for an education in one of the best restaurants in the world, which is, Frankly, those chefs in those restaurants are better than the chefs at the culinary school by one year. If you're not willing to do it for free, like, frankly, that's what I tell every young culinary, like, aspiring culinarian is don't go to culinary school. Save up some money and go work for free in the best restaurants in the world. And with those doors closing for those internships, those opportunities are disappearing. And frankly, the people who jumped off to have those externship opportunities or those um you know, stages in those restaurants, frankly, their resumes are better. They get better opportunities to get oh, more yeah. attachment from investors when they want to open up their restaurants. And so I, I think 
it will be a really sad day for the restaurant industry if we start to see that disappear even more than it is. Um, because of labor laws in like California and different places like that, you're already seeing those unpaid internships disappear. Yeah. And um, because of that, like cooks aren't getting the valuable experience they need um, to break into those worlds and then potentially get over that gap. Because I think there's another side of the restaurant industry that I think most people don't understand is that there's two parts of it. One, if you want to be a great chef, you're probably, unless you're coming from an affluent family, you're probably not going to make a lot of money for a long time. You're probably going to be in debt. I don't think I've ever met a, um, a chef who went through culinary school that did not fall into default on their student loans at some point. <laughs> um, yeah. Just because like, yeah, it's just, it's an impossible it's task. Tough. I mean, I graduated from culinary school when I was making, I was kind of like one of the better students, had a really good resume for my massages and I'm still making $12 an hour out of school. Cool. And that carries on for years, you know, like they made you promise that you're going to graduate being an executive chef, making $50,000 a year, but that's far from the truth. <laughs> um, you're going to have to pay your dues and spend, you know, 10 years working as a cook and maybe working your way up to a sous chef before maybe you could even start the process of becoming a competent chef. Um, people jump the gun, do it faster, but usually it comes with a lot of loss and financially and struggles and lost employees and and then yeah. the other side of it too is like the financial side from the business side. Um, I think a lot of people look at the restaurant industry, even those Michelin three-star powerhouses as if um, they're making just boatloads of cash. And that's not really the case. The restaurant industry's margins are astronomically low. And the more high-end it gets, the more you're spending on ingredients. Um, the waste is massive because you see those perfect plates with that perfect little sliver of duck cut from the center of the breast. Well, where'd the rest of the breast go? <laughs> um, so they're basically paying for a whole duck for two pieces of duck for two guests. And so food costs go through the roof. And I've uh, been to some high-end restaurants where there was brigades of over 70 people working in the kitchen between the different oh, yeah, like, absolutely. Uh, development kitchens and stuff. Think of the massive labor costs associated with operating one of those businesses. So if you want to work in one of those restaurants and you're a young cook and you haven't put the time in to develop the skills on your own, maybe years and years of doing it, these stagiaires are an incredible opportunity, even if you just get to stand there and just wash plates so, yeah. and well, see if they're working. Well, th- th- that's actually really good that you're explaining this. Um, and um, real quick, just summarize what's, a stage is and, and, and what that entails for people who don't quite understand the fine dining world or even just like the restaurant world um, and why people do it. A stage is basically an unpaid internship. Basically for me, what I did was I would reach out to the restaurants for like say Chez Panisse, for instance, I went and bugged them constantly until they said, fine, come in for a day, um, bring your chef coat and knives and you can come in and work for free. And in that process, there's no like, binding agreement or anything like that, that you're going to get to do certain tasks. It's basically, we're going to give you whatever remedial work we want to give you, but you get an opportunity to say that you staged in this restaurant and you get the opportunity to learn in this process. And that learning is really up to you. Like some people are going to advance faster or get better opportunities because they're showing certain proficiency or they already have developed certain skills. But frankly, the chefs in those restaurants do not have the time to sit there and stand alongside you all day and show you how to hold a knife and you know how to peel an onion um they'll probably show you once and expect you to do hundreds of pounds of onion peeling and that's what it is that's what it takes to be good so that's kind of what the sage is it's an opportunity to go into the best restaurants 
and refine the most basic of skills so that someday you can do those other things. But in the process, you can be a sponge and take in everything while you're there. And, and I guess try to express to people who are listening, how big of a deal would it be if you were a young chef and you got the opportunity to stage at Noma, the best restaurant in the world, how big of a deal would that be? Oh, I would be screaming, running around my house, losing my mind. I mean, even today, like if I got an <laughs> opportunity and sent them a letter, like after 25 years of cooking, I'm like, oh my God, I get to go into the kitchens at Noma. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, be, yeah. So, yeah I, I, when I hear people that are upset because they didn't get what they expected out of it and they're... Mm-hmm effectively throwing a temper tantrum about it. It's like, you don't know how lucky you are to have been in that position that I know tens of thousands of cooks that have worked with over the years. It would just, they would cut off a pinky to have that opportunity. And so I, I kind of look at it from a different light because yeah. I have toiled in the industry and I've worked my way up through the ranks and I know what kind of jumpstart that kind of stuff provides for young cooks. And especially at that scale, um, you could say you worked at the number one restaurant in the world. Um, <laughs> it's going to help your resume. Yeah. Well, yeah. For, well for me, um, I'm, I'm half Korean and I'm half German. So both of my, my parents are immigrants. So growing up in an immigrant kind of family, it's very much, you have to work very, very hard to get ahead. And it's a very hard like work mentality. And there's a lot of stereotypes when it comes to both Germans and Koreans and work ethic. And it really is, it really is that intense where well, especially with Koreans, it's like, that's all you do. You know, you really focus on this task, whether it's academics or, you know, advancing your career, you really focus in and do whatever it takes. And then if you have a passion that goes along with it, if you have to understand it, like if people, like anyone who's listening, just think about your biggest, wildest dream, the best job you could ever get. And let's say you wanted to be, I don't know, uh, a musician and then what if your favorite musician was like, hey, why don't you come work for me and learn from me? But you have to work with me and my crew and my 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 music team for free for a few months, but I'll teach you everything you could ever want to know about playing the guitar. Would you do it? Most people would be like, heck yeah. <laughs> like it's like yeah. it's like if, if you love something so much and you get a chance to learn and to grow, but they can't necessarily pay you or they're unwilling to pay you. Like, why not? Why not just do it? Just commit hundred percent. It shows that you're all in too, by all means. I mean, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. And yeah. the, the normal reason why I brought up that piece um, too, and want to dive into a little bit more, is just because as, you know, my blog is growing, your blog is growing too. It's like one of those things where, okay, like, should I be a super informed, educated eater and, are these fine dining restaurants I'm going to, are they bad? Like, are they mistreating their employees? Do I want to, you know, write a good review and promote this restaurant if they're not doing the right ethical things in the kitchen? And so it's not a simple issue. And I'm glad you're bringing this other light to it because, oh goodness, I've, I've barely worked in a kitchen. (laughs) I've worked at some food jobs, but nothing um, too, too crazy. And even in those little like jobs, I worked at Olive Garden for a year cooking, you know, even then that was awesome, but <laughs> it was fun. But even then you, you get, you get to understand a little bit what it's like to work in a kitchen. You understand the intensity that goes into the food, even if it's just a chain restaurant, because even in that case, they still really cared about the food a lot. And they made sure everything was as good as it could possibly be. 
And I enjoyed that time. I learned a lot in that one year. And I realized I don't want to be a chef. <laughs> Actually, that's because <laughs> well, I loved food. And I'm just like, maybe, maybe, maybe I can pursue the culinary arts. I'm like, no, it's too hot back there. No, thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's probably a smart move to be honest with you. <laughs> so I'm like, and like, it only gets more intense than this restaurant. This is just Olive Garden. Okay. If I went to a real kitchen, uh, just think about how much more intense and how like much more important that work is. I, I'm like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to pursue other things for a little while, but it was a good learning yeah. experience for sure. Some of those corporate restaurants get pounded though. Like, I mean, some of those places can seat 400 plus people. Oh yeah. Oh, my They're not super concerned about what happens to the kitchen staff when they drop 400 seats within, you know, half an hour. And I think most people can't rationalize what that is to have that happen or when they go into a restaurant, they'll see like, Oh, there's an open seat over there. Why are they not seating us? Mm-hmm. Cause they don't realize that, um, say one of the restaurants I worked at with Christelle, um, it was an Italian restaurant and, um, we had 165 seats in the restaurant, which is, you know, it's not huge by any stretch of the imagination, but enough, but, um, they were kind of new owners, uh, in the restaurant industry. And they had this kind of policy that we'll see people as long as there's an open table. So it wasn't uncommon for us in the kitchen to get 165 people sat within about 15 minutes. Oh, goodness. And, um, yeah, <laughs> we'd have five cooks, five cooks in the kitchen no. and, um, oh. we could have, you know, within 15 minutes, 230 like appetizers hit the kitchen and we have another 165 plus entrees and less than 15 minutes later that we got you know maybe 100 desserts coming through plus extra courses and sides and special requests and you know all of a sudden like my saute cook is literally has 15 minutes to put out 120 dishes and it's physically impossible <laughs> and he's doing this on a six burner range it's like okay let's do the math here but the stresses that are built into that are pretty incredible and that's kind of goes back to that idea about like the stagiaire and it's like my saute cook didn't get the ability to do that because the chef sat on his shoulder and over, like I didn't sit by him and show him how to do it. That took years and years of working on like pantry stations and working his way up through the ranks in the kitchen to develop that skill set to be able to handle those kind of pressures and execute without compromise on every dish that he was putting out. And somehow he would manage to get through it. He was pushed to do something that was basically impossible but he was trying to get just as close as he possibly could every single night. But that also then weighs on young cooks um, because every single day you go home having not reached your goal of getting through service flawlessly. And so it's kind of like a constant series of failures, even though there's no possible way of ever winning the game. And so I think that's one of the realities that like young cooks don't get. It's like, just to be able to get to that point where you're still going to come up short, it takes many, many years of practice. Man, well, goodness. It's almost been like an hour of us talking now. I'm sorry. I have to, have to like move on to a few other things. And now just talk, I'm picking your brain about the restaurant business. And I really appreciate you kind of diving into the, some of those details because it's not just as simple as reading one or two articles that some people have written about the restaurant industry or a certain restaurant. It's more complex and it's actually a lot of things are good or happening as well. So sometimes we don't investigate sometimes those deeper issues, but Oh goodness. Uh, I I do have one more question though. I'm really interested in this. Um, The last thing about the restaurant business, I'm sorry. Um, What are you like? Do you, did you like Yelpers or like food critics when you were in the restaurant business or did they cause more problems than, than like 
help out? Um, to be totally honest with you, um, it didn't really affect me too much. I mean, when I was a young cook uh, or a young chef, and I started to, started to get my first like real restaurant reviews by real like food critics, um, it was exciting um, because I knew what it meant for the businesses that I either was in ownership with or I was working for and what that meant as far as like our ability to do more, um, especially when you start to get more customers coming in because you get a good review. I knew what the impact of that was. And um, luckily my first review was a very good one and it kind of went really well from there. And um, um, so I, that mattered to me, but as far as like Yelpers and stuff like that, I kind of looked at the negative feedback and I kind of realized that the farther I went through my career, like um, the positive reviews meant nothing to me at some point. And that sounds kind of crazy, uh -huh. but um, I only need to know when we got it wrong. And so, if, um, you know, a couple come in and then they have the best meal of their life and they're gushing about it. I'm always so thankful that they came in to enjoy the experience. That they had a good time. And um, but what I really wanted to know was that that other table that's leaving with a frown on their face or that plate of food that came back and it wasn't finished. Like, what did we get wrong? Um, because that was about growth because if you're not constantly growing, it's, you're not going to get it right for anybody or, and the more people you can get it right for the better. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's always looking to, and also recognizing too, that you can't get it right for everybody because you can't yeah. tease everybody or refill everybody, but still like those ones that they're, Getting it right matters, and those little details matter. So I was always paying attention. If someone's upset, it's really easy to wade through it and see, okay, this person's just miserable in life, and then this person literally has a legitimate complaint, and then you start looking for trends. Okay, we've had three people say this thing. We need to seriously address this and get behind what's going on with this problem. So yeah, I don't mind. I don't mind Yelpers. I'm, I think the I do review every once in a while, like on like Google reviews, but I only do it when I like I go to like a really cool little mom and pop shop and you know, they can tell that they're just trying struggling to get their legs underneath them and I'll give them a good review just to kind of hopefully lift them up. But I would never write anything to try to tear someone down. I don't understand that mindset. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It yeah. wasn't a personal attack that they made your food cold. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, because uh, it can be kind of tough. And I, I don't like if I'm doing like a food guide, if there's a restaurant I don't like, I usually just don't. I don't talk about bad restaurants. I only talk about the good ones. So I don't I'm always afraid. Yeah. I don't want to like impact someone poorly. There, there are some restaurants. Goodness, I, I have talked bad about like on the podcast. Like one of them was um, it's not open anymore. Someone it was um, was uh, Gagan in, in Bangkok. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so that was at the time when I went. It was like the fourth best restaurant in the world, and man, I was just I was so disappointed. And I wasn't I don't know maybe I didn't have the right expectations, but it was like twenty courses. It was it was a lot of food. I mean, most of them are still one yeah. bite, but it's a lot of food. And I don't know, it wasn't worth the three hundred some dollars I paid for per person for it or whatever it was. Well, I think there's a big difference between what you're talking about and like having an open dialogue about a restaurant and an experience that you've had. Yeah. As opposed to maybe someone who's going on Yelp who's just like, there's just some delicious <laughs> people out there. There's just they people are. like, I, I've heard someone, it was actually a, a podcaster I was listening to, I won't name them, but they were like, probably said there's like, for every thousand people, there's that one a-hole a or whatever, oh, um, who like, is, there's always one for every hundred or every thousand. And so you're going to get that. You've got these people that come into the restaurant that have looking for a captive audience 
to just take out their misery on and it happens, you know, and as a, like in restaurant ownership or management, I've always tried to shield like servers from having to deal with that stuff. Like, so I would commonly go out onto the service floor if I need to, if there's a difficult customer and let them vent to me or there's times where I've kicked out customers and it's happened more times than I can count. It's like, okay, we don't need your business. We don't need this kind of negativity in our establishment and it's time to go. (laughs) (laughs) Your business is no longer welcome. So Yeah. 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 And the thing is, I don't always just be nice to everybody. Like when you go into a restaurant, goodness, it's, it's a wild place. And unless you've worked in a restaurant, sometimes you don't really quite know. And I have, I've been a server and I've now, you know, cooked in the back and I've prepped food. I've worked at like a deli before too, like slicing meats and making sandwiches when I was a teenager. And, and, and that small exposure made me realize like, okay, this this can be a tough job and it can be very stressful because everything's happening all at once and everyone's expecting you to make it right and perfect all the time. Oh yeah, and the servers just take the brunt of it too. Like mm-hmm. people just destroy them. It's like it's not your it's not their fault your food's yeah. taking 45 minutes. The kitchen's backed up. And if you got a real complaint taken up with ownership or management, yeah. these are the ones who've allowed for them to get to a point where there was too much coming at the cooks that then falls back on the server. And people are like, I'm not tipping you because my food took too long. <laughs> not their fault. <laughs> it, is, it is not their fault. Oh my goodness. Well, yeah. okay. Well, shifting gears now. Um, goodness, like where, like where are some of your favorite places that you traveled to? What are some of those interesting places that you look back and like, I'm so glad that I was able to experience that place. Um, I, one of them that like, it keeps kind of calling me back all the time. Well, I'll start off me and Christelle are both like really into the outdoors nature. And like Christelle's like an avid hiker. There's times when she would just take off, go drive an hour and a half into the Marine headlands and go hiking 14 miles on her own, just up through the foothills. Cause she just, loves being outside and I'm an avid um, trail runner and hiker. Um, and um, so Patagonia has kind of been a very special place to us. Um, seems like it's constantly calling us back. Um, there's something just really wild about it. The idea that you can drive like six hours and there's just not even like an outpost um, between the stops and you can disappear with a backpack on and just go for days on end. And um yeah, that's something we fell in love with. And that's one of our big reasons we're going back to South America in um, the start of 2024 is because um, it lines up between the gaps, some of the races I'm going to be doing on the trail running. And um, um, we just want to go back and be in the mountains again. So, yeah, yeah, that's one of the big ones. And then also we love being in the water. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Real quick, I, w- I want to go into that in a second, but since we're just on Patagonia, so I've, we've been through South America now for about five months, my wife and I, and unfortunately, because like money, we're just kind of budget travelers. We are mostly just staying in cities and just eating a bunch of food and I'm just writing about the food, but I would love to come back and do more of the nature things because I've been doing that my entire life. I live in Denver, love the mountains. How, how would I start making a plan to do anything in Patagonia. So like wh- which country would I kind of go into like cause Patagonia and the whole mountain range can span across, you know, a couple different countries. So how did you guys do it? And what advice would you give for like a new person like me? I think uh, for newbies going into it, um, have you done much backpacking or any like yeah. that kind of um, 
long tracking. Okay, so having that kind of experience, this should be really straightforward for you. So like, I would definitely recommend going into Southern Argentina to um, uh, El Calafate, which is um, the Southern city down by the point and it's close to the Puerto Moreno glacier. And so that's worth a stop on its own. And the size of the glacier is like, I think something like 1800 um, feet deep. And like the land mass of it is actually bigger than the entirety of the UK. And you can sit there and watch these columns of it break off. And it's literally like watching the entire state building collapse oh, into the water. I see it. You okay. see these like 10 meter waves coming away from this teal waters. From there, though, you'll jump over to um, Puerto Moreno. And I believe that's it. And then um, from there, you'll actually go into Torres de Pania National Park, where you can do the W or the O um, trek, which it's kind of set up in a way that you want to book in advance um, because they do limit the amount of people that can go into the national park. And um, if you want to do it on a budget, you can do it by camping all the way through and there's little camp spots um, and alongside the refugios and the refugios offer like, like kind of dorm beds and a hot meal, but you can kind of just do it for a lot cheaper by booking just the campsites. Um, and that's a great introduction to Patagonia because you're going to get to see some of the highlights of that area um, and it's breathtaking. You're going to be exposed to all four seasons and within an hour at times like we saw snow to rainstorms to stripping layers. It's hot all within like maybe 45 minutes. And so um, I would highly recommend that. And then there's um, El Chalten, which is another area where you can do hikes directly from town up to um, Fitzroy, which is, I, the hiking back in that area um, is looks like something right out of like a Lord of the Rings film. It looks so fake. And when you take photos of it, it's like, people are like, did you Photoshop this? No, that's literally <laughs> what it looks like. And yeah, just some of the most breathtaking, untouched wilderness I've ever been exposed to. And the fun thing is you go up hike for the day. You can either choose to camp up there for the night or you can just come back into town each day after trekking into the wilderness and um, sit down and have a, some beers and, um, some burgers and <laughs> or some like empanadas and um, do it again the next day. And so um, that was one of my favorite spots because it's day after day after day, we were just hitting different hikes and heading back into the wilderness. And so those are two great options for doing Patagonia. Like it makes it pretty accessible. Um, staying at the refugios can be a little expensive. So, you know, pick up a tent, um, get a used one through REI or whatever, and um, take it with you and we'll save you a bunch of money. So. I like it. Okay. And now you said you like being in the water as well. Yeah, we were, we both love diving a lot. Um, some of our best experiences we've ever had in traveling um, involved diving, be it in the Philippines or one of our favorites was um, spending time diving with the manta rays in um, um, Komodo National Park in Indonesia. Um, just such majestic animals. I got the wingspan of like 15, 16 feet and um, they're doing like those big circles in the water and they're super playful and um, they recognize you and like kind of almost like dancing around you in the water. There's times where we're surrounded by like 15, 16 of them at a time. And yeah, that's pretty spectacular. And then Christelle's even dope with thresher sharks in the Philippines. So oh. I didn't, yeah. So she was down like 30 meters and sitting on the bottom and there's thresher sharks swirling around and yeah, that's a lot of fun. I didn't get to do that when I had ruptured my eardrum diving um, like two dives prior to that. So it was out for the count. But yeah, that's that's something we kind of seek out. And I think that's one of my top like travel 
things that I want to do is dive with the humpback whales in um, Morea and Tahiti. I think that's got to be probably the top of my list right now. I love aquatic marine life and almost every place we go, I have to go in an aquarium. So I have not been scuba certified. I haven't done any scuba diving just because I really haven't had any chances yet. And I know I'm going to have that chance in the future. So I'll definitely do that. But one of my concerns is like, I don't know. I haven't been in that much open water. Like, do you get more comfortable? I'm kind of scared like a, a big shark or some big old fish will come by like out of nowhere because you can't see them from like a distance and all of a sudden it's just going to be right up in your face. Yeah, they do. But they're, um, <laughs> it's not really that scary to be honest with you. Once you get down the water, it's such a peaceful, like, unless you're in like some heavy currents and stuff like that, which they tend to like not let like non really seriously advanced divers um, do do current dives so you won't be exposed to like really dangerous conditions but for the most part when you drop into the water it's it's extremely tranquil very peaceful and if you go to a good dive center to get um certified you're going to get comfortable in the water um way before you ever get to do any of those big dives and um yeah i think like i did my first testing and practice inside of a pool and that took off the edge completely like the first thing i was worried about is what if i had to cough really bad with the (laughs) regulator in my mouth and well i got in i inhaled some water by accident it's coughing like crazy like when the water goes down the wrong pipe i just kept on breathing through the regulator and everything was fine it was like the worst nightmare scenario happened (laughs) and it was fine so yeah it's actually really easy Um, i highly recommend doing it here in southeast asia someplace be it like um philippines or thailand because um the cost of getting your certification is very low, but it's the same level of certification through Patty or one of the oh, other organizations okay. you get other places. So save yourself a bunch of money and spend it on good food or going on some extra dives. Because I think once you get in the water, if you love going to the aquarium, imagine being able to swim in the oh, aquarium yeah. and be able to go into those tanks. You're, yeah. you'll probably fall in love really fast. Yeah, it sounds like it'll be that way because we've gone, we've gone like snorkeling all over the place and um, and, and in Thailand and through some of the islands and it's it's phenomenal it really is just a unique place is it expensive to plan out these scuba diving trips oh well specifically in southeast asia because that's where i think my wife will be going again next year so it's, it could be fairly reasonable it depends on the destination i mean i find the philippines to be the cheapest last time we were there uh, i think i did three dives for 100 bucks oh. and that included lunch and a full day on Jeez. the boat <laughs> so, yeah that's that's really cheap yeah. okay <laughs> yeah nice. and that was sort of like a five-star patty um you know, um, certified uh, shop. And yeah, so it's very, very affordable. It might've gone up since then, but still, it's still in that realm. And um, yeah, there's some places we've been to where it was even cheaper than that, where you're literally doing shore dives. Um, like in, I, I highly recommend the Philippines if you want to do some diving, because you're going to see yeah. stuff that like, you won't even see in Thailand. Uh, the biodiversity and is much higher. Um, we've had experiences where we're swimming with like literally millions and millions of sardines right off the shore and they're just flickering and surrounding us and you know um it's, there's whale sharks cruising around and yeah you'll fall yeah you'll have so much fun <laughs> i'm sold i'm gonna do it next year now for sure <laughs> yeah the philippines is a pretty cheap place to go to too and it's still kind of wild too it's not like thailand where everything's kind of like super organized and yeah. like, say so you get off the plane and you can get your transfer and everything's in place for you like philippines is a little it's a little strange. Like if you want to go to like El Nido, which is a great place to do some diving out of, um, you're going to fly into the airport and then have to get a transfer van that will take you six hours just to get there. It's like, it's not Intense. the same as, 
it's a little more intense. And it's fun, though. That's it, part it, of the it adventure. It also reminds though. you of your traveling. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> That's like you feel like you're traveling. So. Yeah. Well, I like to remind people whenever they, you know, they say, oh, man, it's great. Yeah, you're just traveling the world and eating lots of food. And yeah, it's it's awesome. Okay. First of all, I'll say that it is one of the most amazing experiences to just slow travel through countries, you know, spend weeks, months in one city at a time and experience it. But then you go to some places or traveling around a lot, it, you know, things go wrong. You know, sometimes you have to get sick, you have to go to the hospital or, you know, you, uh, you get delays and cancellations and then you, you're on, you're up for 48 hours straight because of your flight connections and how it works. Like there's all these uncomfortable things that can happen and those aren't even that bad, but it's just, that's part of the adventure. Like everything is not going to go smooth. Everything isn't going to go perfect because well, even in just what we can understand, any sort of adventure movie or TV show, the media that we understand, uh, books even, there's always conflict. The adventure always has a little bit of that pushback, that um, kind of tough situations that you have to go through and overcome. And when you look back, even for us who have been through some of those experiences, look back and like, you know what? That's actually what made it kind of exciting, <laughs> even though it was a near-death experience. And I'm glad I, you know, like... In Vietnam, I crashed my motorbike. That wasn't very fun. And luckily, we weren't hurt very bad, but um, it was part of the experience. You know, <laughs> things, things, yeah. things don't go as we plan sometimes. <laughs> and I'll never ride a motorbike. I'll never drive a motorbike again uh, without lessons first. But anyways, it's like those things happen. And- so you would wait. <laughs> <laughs> time out. Your first, was that your first time riding a motorbike? Oh, yeah. Ever. Yeah. They said, okay, here, here you go. <laughs> Well, you chose Vietnam of all yep. places. Oh, it was, <laughs> it was, it was bonkers. It was wild. I didn't understand it at all because you're just driving through a sea of motorbikes and, and everyone has like their own way of driving. Everyone's yielding to each other. This is a whole ecosystem of how things work. And I didn't understand that, but I actually didn't crash because of that. I crashed because while I was making a turn, it was really dumb. I don't know how this happened. I hit a rock and my motorbike just flew up from underneath me. I was going really slow, just like maybe five, Mm. six miles an hour. And then I was upright turning and then boom, my wife and I were on the ground and we slid. Luckily it wasn't too bad. Some pretty bad scrapes. Not too bad, but I'm like, okay, I realize I can get into an accident really quickly and I'm not experienced to doing this. So, and then it was tough kind of driving back because we were in, where were we? We were in Hoi An and we we're going to uh, Da Nang, um, uh, Vietnam. And so, yeah, it was, yeah, it was interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a, it's not that long of a ride for, between those two, but sometimes no. when you're hurt and you're, <laughs> you're, Drawing the ones up, and yeah, yeah. that's kind of like I'm scared. Yeah, <laughs> it's just like, oh my yeah I'm always scared of that. We ride a scooter kind of constantly here, and um, it's just how we get around. And even in Chiang Mai, when we're like cruising around on some of those highways and stuff, it's kind of intense because cars are you know doing upwards of like 60 miles per hour right alongside you on a mm-hmm. scooter. <laughs> yeah, it's gonna be a little scary. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, okay, well, that gets me excited about you know scuba diving and and going into that sort of adventure. Now I'm curious about what some of your favorite uh, like food experiences that you've had. And goodness, I'm sure you've had a ton of them, even in the restaurant business. But while you're traveling, what are some of your like top food experiences? Whether it's the food was really good or the ambiance was amazing, where you were was fantastic. I, I've had some, yeah, like you said, imagine that like 
me being a chef and seeking out food is a primary thing. I, I honestly think some of the most powerful experiences that I've had were not in those fine dining kind of establishments or places where you think of these palaces of gourmet food. Um, we did have some amazing experiences like at Munger Eats in San Sebastian. Um, but for the most part, the stuff that I've always fallen in love with is those connections that I make, say, with a specific vendor. Um, so like, say, in Kosamui, which is kind of a touristy spot, well, there's a huge amount of Thai people that live on that island that are kind of the support system for that, uh, that kind of tourism. And people who live there have been living there for a couple generations. And there's a little Isan restaurant that specializes in um, gai ang or grilled chicken and um, grilled pork neck and all the classic like variations of San Tom. And oh, yeah. um, we go see her every single time. And she was just so excited to see us every time. And we'd sit down. We were excited to see her because we had this connection. She kind of knew what we we're going to order. She knew how we liked things. She knew our spice level. And she was kind of constantly like teasing it up a little spicier each time and acclimating us to Isan food, because specifically is um, one of the dishes I really love is um, Samtam Puplara, which is um, like this super murky, funky, fermented fish kind of sauce. It's not like this, the clear fish sauce stuff that you get in the bottle that they serve as a condiment. It's that it's almost like they take a bunch of fish, put it in the pot, and then just kind of lightly skim off the funk after months of it fermenting. And it's just, even when I order it and um, when I'm here in Thailand, uh, the vendors usually look at me like I'm crazy because they never see um, um, a, a foreigner or a tourist or whoever order that. So um, she would make it really just kind of had her recipe kind of dialed on that. And then on top of it, too, she knew what my spice level was. So she probably put in about 15 to 20 chilies on it. So it's just enough to blow my head <laughs> off, but not yeah. ruin me. <laughs> nice. Yeah. And so, yeah, those are the kind of experiences like that I, I love so much. It's like those those continuing to go back and like dig in and like explore new stuff and she's showing us different variations of like some of the like different salads you get from the region that we never would have been exposed to otherwise and um i think that's what's special in food to me i've also had some other really amazing opportunities to to like go in and see parmesan production from all the way from alpha alpha to you know a 36 uh, month aged wheel and um We've spent time with um, the black-footed pigs in Spain and um, actually been out there and like walking around, spending time with the pigs as they're foraging for acorns, seeing the husbandry programs and how these animals are raised and, you know, really getting to see why the pork and that Iberica pork is so special in that region and then see that being turned from, you know, a vibrant animal to eventually it becoming these beautiful legs of Iberico ham and, um, um, so we've had a lot of those kind of food connections where you're seeing ingredients through the maturation process and as it's developed into these special products that um, I think that like kind of like Italy and France, I think are known for, you look at like the gastronomy in those regions and most people think of like a pasta dish or say like they think about France, for instance, and they think about like these composed um, plates from steak frites to cassoulet or whatever. And um, to me, when I think of those regions, I think about those individual ingredients. I think of those things that, like in Italy, you can go there and never order a plate of food and just eat cheese, bread, and <laughs> yeah. salumi and, and have the most amazing food experiences of your entire life. And um, I found that I was more connected to kind of those experiences of connecting with the ingredients where they came from and then experience them in their finest form and then often enjoying them with a great glass of wine. 
And yeah. <laughs> those are some of my favorite experiences I've ever had. So. Okay. And okay, you you just blew my head away. Okay, so you got to hang out and fig and like and experience the whole Iberian pork situation. So, um, if people who are listening don't understand, it is um, the like main, I guess, thing that most people think about if you go into Spain. The thing you see everywhere is ham, some sort of like cured ham, and there's a special there's a special one um, that is. You know, raised on acorns, it's black hoofed pig, raised up in the mountains, and it makes the most amazing, you know, cuts of ham that you'd ever have. And it, it's one of my favorite things in the in the entire world was trying, you know, ham on Iberico. Um, so how did you organize to go do that and learn about the whole process? Um, it took some digging, lots of digging. I think that's one of the things. It's like everybody sees what like Anthony Bourdain um did when he would go out and do those experiences like we saw like um him go truffle hunting and, and all that and well we're like why can't we do that too so we did we figured out how to do it we actually ended up going and meeting up with um, some locals meeting a truffle hunter and going out with his dogs today and hunting for white and black truffles and so the same thing happened with this Christelle's like okay we want to do this we want to have this experience and so she started digging in and um she just wouldn't relent until she found a path for us to do it and ended up me renting the car, us driving across Spain from Andalusia up to the, the specific Tejesa or Valley, whatever, where they were foothills where they were um, raising the pigs and meeting directly with the producer. And um, yeah, it was um, once we got the ball rolling, there's so, like these people are so passionate about their craft and what they do. Um, they just want to share it with you. They're <laughs> thrilled and like they just want to pack you up some and send it with you, you know, because they want you to enjoy the product. And um, we did the same thing with um, we wanted to experience like sherry production in Jerez in southern Spain. And that was one I've always dreamed of because um, my mom's side of the family has some connection to the Humberto family, which was in historically in um, sherry production way back um, like centuries ago <laughs> or centuries ago. And um, so I wanted to go experience that. We actually got to go in and visit some of these classic um, um, sherry producers and actually go and see how the sherry produce and learn about all the different styles. And um, we also did the same thing with Parma ham. Um, we actually went to Parma specifically to for Parmesan and um, Culatello and for Parmesan, oh. um, what's it called, oh. prosciutto. So we, we did all three oh of those. Goodness. We actually went, yeah. <laughs> And so we wanted to go see the production, see it at its finest, understand where it's coming from. Like when you're at like the place where they're producing the Parmesan and you actually get to go pick up the alfalfa and you can smell it. I actually was surrounded by the cows and I'm doing this and seeing what their food's coming from. You can pick up the soil and smell it because like, I mean, that terroir is present, like just in wine, it's present in throughout these different ingredients. It's part of like the regionality and like, like you can't make prosciutto, De Parma without that specific geographical location where they produce it, where they get those ocean breezes coming in and that salinity kind of like that's in the air that you can smell. Um, it's a big part of why that product is what it is. And so without experiencing that portion of it, you really never get to really experience what prosciutto de Parma really is and why it is specifically the way the final product comes out to be and why it's so special. And so, um, yeah, we tried to take advantage of this. Like I've been cooking with these ingredients my entire life, uh, but I didn't really feel like I really knew them. And this was the chance to connect to that. 
So basically you're saying just be relentless. <laughs> That's what you have to do. Just yeah. keep trying yeah. to find a way. How did you overcome like language barriers? Did you bring a translator with you or was there always someone that spoke English there? We're very fortunate that English is spoken so um, well around the world. And I do speak Spanish uh, working in kitchens in California. So that helped me in Spain. Um, yeah, working in kitchens in California, like it wasn't common. Uh, there's a couple of restaurants I worked in where we spoke Spanish entirely just for efficiency's sake because of, you know, it's such a multilingual culture. Um, and so it worked out really well um, when we got there that I was able to translate as best I can. <laughs> Some gotcha. of that. Um, yeah, it was kitchen Spanish, but enough to be able to communicate and understand the details. And then usually there was an English speaking person that was available at different times. We kind of had to line that up in advance also to get a translator kind of like they actually become like a facilitator in a way. So I understand. Okay. Cause I goodness, cool. Tello, like, and seeing like balsamico and seeing, um, Parmigiano Reggiano, seeing those sort of things is like my bucket list things. Like I want to, I want to go there, experience it, and eat some like Parmesan cheese fresh out of the wheel. I've had done it before, and it's like it's crazy, like how much different it tastes when they just you know open up a wheel compared to if it's been sitting in a package or if it's like you know pre graded. Like how different the whole process makes the cheese taste. It's, it's, it's remarkable. Yeah, it really deteriorates fast. Um, the second they cut into it, it's like the fat is best and it's only getting worse. And I tried to explain that to people that Parmigiano Reggiano, like what you bought at the grocery store is, you know, it's about a quarter of what it used to be as far as its aromatics. And I don't want to sound like I'm being pretentious or whatever, but it really is that much better <laughs> uh, when you get it fresh in that moment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it's crazy. It's crazy. And Culatello is one of the best kept secrets, I think, when it comes to like salumi and like, um, well, like cured meats and stuff. No one's ever heard of it. And it's probably one of my favorite things as far as so, like, Hamon Iberico and then Culatello for me. I think mean, Culatello is just kind of, it's so porky. <laughs> I don't know how to describe <laughs> it a little bit. It's just, it's intensely in your face pork and it's, it's delicious. Um, I think you need a trip to Amelia Romana pretty soon because you can get yeah. all those spots, a lot of those spots all in one pass. And I <laughs> exactly. highly recommend do the balsamic thing too, because I think yeah. that will blow your mind. I think most people, when they think of balsamic, they actually don't even really know what balsamic is. They just, they think of that um, stuff that comes in the bottle you buy for $8 at the grocery store. That's um, basically vinegar with burnt sugar in it. And it's kind of garbage. Um, and they never really experience what real balsamic is where it's um, that slow maturation. We got to actually try some stuff that was in the yeah. hundred years old range <gasps> over there that just breathtaking. You eat a couple drops of that with some of that Parmesan. Oh, man. Game <laughs> as over. Good as it gets. Actually, <laughs> yeah. I you had don't a, anything else. <laughs> exactly. Well, I had a guest um, a few weeks ago. Her name is uh, Katie Clark. And she runs like tours and stuff over in Italy. And so I was picking her brain. I specifically said like one of my dream trips is to spend like a few months or a few months in Italy and specifically in Emilia Romagna and like eat all this amazing food specifically because I, I have to, it's like, it's calling me. I can feel it. I'm like, Oh my goodness. I have to eat these delicious things because it's where it's the source that I want to see the, see that source freshly cut or freshly opened and presented and tried at its very best. Oh, yeah, tries. you're going to be in for a treat. I definitely recommend going into that area of the world, go to Emilia Rana and then immediately jump up and head to like Alba 
they try to catch it during truffle season. Oh, you can go to the truffle, truffle festival. Yeah. <laughs> the truffle festival is um, a blast. I mean, there's literally millions and millions of dollars of truffles in cases. They're selling and weighing them. It's like, it's like this black market trade going on in the background <laughs> and stuff. And yeah, it's, it's really cool. And then you can do that. And then you can go off and go truffle hunting. And also some of the best wines in Italy are produced yeah. in that region too. So get your I'm um, excited barberas too. and yeah. So, yeah, that's, that sounds like a good time. I want to go back. <laughs> and we actually might this end of summer. Um, there's a decent chance we might go up to the Alps to in like Chamonix and I'll do some running while I'm up there. And then um, we'll definitely stop through some of those areas just to eat ourselves sick for at least a couple of weeks. Oh no. Yes. <laughs> it sounds amazing. <laughs> um, goodness. I love truffles. Um, a few years back we went to um, uh, Zagreb, Croatia, and there's actually truffles in Croatia. It's kind of like, a hidden secret where you can get like truffles for pretty cheap. So we went truffle hunting up there. It was great to like work with like truffles and cook with them. Cause you've always seen them. I remember doing this really crazy, like truffle tasting, um, at an Italian restaurant and they brought the truffles, you know, this like enormous, you know, huge blob of like truffles and they show it to you on the platter and then they shave it over your food and stuff. And that's wonderful. But I've never got a chance to touch one, you know, no chance to like smell it up front and slice it myself and cook with it. And it's just, it's a crazy ingredient, man. Like truffles are just wonderful. Yeah, that's really cool. You have to do that in uh, Zagreb. Um, we've been in Croatia, but we missed truffle season. Um, unfortunately, we really enjoyed our time there and found some really good food and actually kind of fell in love with some of the country. But uh, yeah, we missed truffle season, unfortunately. <laughs> the- well, it's it's a good place to get truffles for like less expensive because you know Italy's really I'm sure they're better over there, but um, you know they, they do a pretty good job over in Croatia as well. Um, yeah, it's a little easier on the pocketbook, especially for a tra- <laughs> as a traveler. Yeah. <laughs> well, goodness, it's been uh, it's been an hour and a half. I think I think we're at our time here. Uh, goodness, I feel like I can talk to you about food all day and uh, just keep going for hours and hours. But um, well, Gabriel, if People want to follow you, see what you're doing, and uh, catch you on all your adventures. Where can they do that online? Uh, the best place to find us is at cheftravelguide.com. Um, that's where most of our content is based out of. We're kind of um, not really super focused on social media. So the best place is to find our content there. Um, we're really just trying to facilitate travel and make it easier for people and uh, kind of open the doors for everything from outdoor travel to food adventures. So, um, yeah, we've kind of got it all covered in especially with a big emphasis on California, I think it's uh, one of the most concentrated places for like epic outdoor adventures and just exploring and the world. And so I highly recommend um, if you haven't been to California, just spend some time in Northern California specifically and enjoy the coast, the mountains and all that stuff. And we got all that stuff covered. I am absolutely excited for my trip next year, hopefully making it to Italy, scuba diving through Southeast Asia, so many fun adventures and so much great food that is uh, there for me. And uh, I was just really happy to kind of talk through some of the interesting issues that have been coming up about the restaurant business and what it's like in the fine dining industry and just working in the food industry in general. There are so many moving parts and people are always at the center of it. We work really hard. We make mistakes and things happen. And sometimes as diners, we have to be kind of graceful sometimes and understand that, hey, these are people and we ourselves mess up in our own lives or things don't go right and things just aren't perfect. And whether it's in a restaurant, at the airport, or somewhere in your travels, remember the things that go wrong 
or the things that can make us a bit uncomfortable, those are the important integral parts that are part of the adventure. Find ways to embrace it and find new ways to enjoy that adventure. So for the show notes of this page about everything we've kind of talked about here, and as well as some uh, information about California uh, that we didn't get a chance to, to hit on today, but some of those resources from, uh, from Gabriel's website, he's going to have them in the show notes of the page. Go to nomadicfoodist.com slash chef travel guide. That's nomadicfoodist.com slash chef travel guide for all of those details and resources that Gabriel thinks that you should have. If you liked this episode, please hit that subscribe button so you get a brand new episode from awesome travelers and foodists from around the world sharing their experiences with you. Thank you again for listening and remember, eat with an adventurous heart no matter where you go. 